21st birthday was the next day, she'd excitedly informed me. The carrot cake I'd made for her still sat wrapped in my caterer's van, but she hadn't even twitched since I tripped over her. Damn it! I couldn't feel a pulse. Maybe it's just weak, I thought. Maybe I'm not feeling in the right spot. I struggled to a half-standing position. Dusty looked as if she'd fallen sideways. Her pretty face was obscured by her tumble of blonde brown hair. I gently shook her shoulders, but nothing happened. I pushed my fingers into a new place on Dusty's wrist, then noticed that the beige skirt had somehow gotten caught up around her hips. Hips she had ruthlessly slimmed by riding an exercise bike at Aspen Meadows' new rec center every morning before showing up for work. When Richard Chenault had hired Dusty, as ambitious a niece as any tight-fisted uncle could ever hope to have, she'd been determined to look as mature as possible. She'd just finished her associate's degree and was starting paralegal school and was set on acquiring and fitting into a professional wardrobe. Remembering her happy gratitude when I presented her with the suit, I gently shook her again with my free hand. Dusty, it's me, Goldie, I murmured, as I let go of her wrist and reached under her shoulders with both hands. I'm going to turn you over. Her body was limp, but warm. There was redness around her neck. I saw now that blood was seeping out of a small gash at the top of her forehead, and her pretty face was flushed on one side. Her blue eyes were half open, her slack mouth contrasted with her bright, curly hair. She didn't moan or blink, and I cursed silently. When I shook her again, her legs sprawled like a scarecrow's. Her hands flopped open, palm up. The thoughts, I should get out of here and don't touch anything, competed ferociously with, if she's still alive, I could help her. I felt in my apron pocket for my cell phone. I'd been in a hurry to get over here after my van wouldn't start, and I must have left the phone on the front seat. I gently let go of Dusty and jumped over to the reception desk, but when I picked up a molasses-covered receiver to call for help, there was no dial tone. I raced to the first office on the hall and felt for a light. I found another phone and jab buttons, to no effect. Did the H&J folks shut down all telecommunications at night? I hadn't a clue. I returned to Dusty and frantically started CPR. I noticed that the redness around her neck was quite dark, not just pink. My heart faltered. I wanted to talk to Dusty, to ask if someone had hurt her and why. But I couldn't do any of those things because I was trying to breathe life into her lungs. As I worked feverishly on my young neighbor, I kept thinking, this isn't happening. There was fake blood. There were weak pulses. I still half expected her to jump up, erupt into giggles, and shout for everyone to leap out from assorted hiding places. I felt the other wrist for a pulse. Even if it's weak, I knew I had to keep going. I momentarily stopped CPR and waited for Dusty to breathe on her own. She didn't. Leave. That same inner voice commanded me. Get out. Call for help from somewhere else. But I couldn't. Not yet. I was bent on bringing about the resuscitation part of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. After, what was it? Five minutes? A half hour? I gave up. 
Later, the cops wanted to know when I'd left the H&J office, and every time they asked, I told them I didn't know. The time had turned fluid once I discovered Dusty. Why did that matter so much, I wondered. I could not pinpoint the actual moment when I exhaled, got to my feet, and dashed out the firm's massive front door. Outside, chilly, sweet autumn air smacked my face and made me cough. A sharp mountain breeze was lashing the trees that circled the rear parking lot. I could imagine the voice of my husband, Tom, a sheriff's department investigator, urging me to get cracking and get out of there. My breath puffed as I ran, panting, toward the shopping center across the street. I thought of Dusty again, sprawled out on the reception area carpeting. Back in my pre-Tom days, I'd been unhappily married to John Richard Corman, a physically abusive doctor who was the father of my 15-year-old son, Arch. It was during my years with him that I'd learned the lessons of Medwives 101, our own version of medical authority. Sometimes you can't feel a pulse, I stubbornly reminded myself for at least the tenth time. Please, God, I prayed, as I jumped carefully onto the access road's slippery pavement. Please let Dusty be okay. The thin, vulnerable face of Sally Rout, Dusty's mother, loomed before me. I peered along the line of nearby storefronts. A gray fluorescent bulb blinked inside art, music, and copies. I hammered mercilessly on the glass door. Finally, someone appeared. A young fellow, twenty-ish, Dusty's boyfriend, Vic something. I need help, I called. It's an emergency. I need a phone. His hand was unexpectedly warm and moist as he grabbed mine and led me inside. Take it easy. Take it easy. I punched in 911 on his phone. When the emergency operator answered, I told her what I'd found and where. I said we needed medical help right away. Vic drew back, his face drained of color. He said, what? But I had to ignore him, as I was telling the operator that in addition to an ambulance, she needed to send the sheriff's department. What's going on? Was there a break-in? He persisted. You said you needed an ambulance for Dusty? Why? Why do the cops need to come? Vic, I said. I need to go back to H&J. You cannot follow me. Vic followed anyway. Across the street, two long black cars moved into the parking lot. Welcome to living in a small town. Someone had seen me and thought, What's up at this time of night, with the caterer running away from the office building occupied by H&J? That same someone had made a call, and now, across the street in the H&J lot, we were faced with the result. The lawyers are coming! The lawyers are coming! Wait, I called to the figures emerging from the BMWs. Heeding me, two tall people stood outside their respective car doors, their arms crossed. I recognized Richard Chenault, Dusty's uncle. This week, he was the only one of the three partners not doing continuing education on Maui. Standing nearby was his soon-to-be-divorced emergency room doctor wife, Katie Chenault, whom I liked and admired immensely. I wondered if she had just arrived at the big Flicker Ridge house she and Richard still shared, while they fought over property, 
when the call from who knows whom had summoned Richard. KD, Dusty's upstairs, I said. It looks as if, as if her heart's stopped. KD turned to race up the steps to the firm. Another H&J attorney approached us from the other car. Donald Ellis, an associate at the firm, was a short, red-haired fellow, very quiet, who holed up for hours in his office. While five of the seven associates had opted to join the partners in Hawaii, Donald had said he desperately needed to catch up on his paperwork. The final car that had pulled into the lot made me shudder, but not from the cold. It was Louise Upton, H&J's office manager. I recalled the time I pointed out two errors of grammar in my contract, a contract that had been drawn up by one of the partners to Louise, or Miss Upton, as I'd been told I should call her. She was a 60-ish, formidable guard dog of a woman, and she had told me if I wanted to be the firm's caterer, I needed to learn my place. She'd actually said that. I needed to learn my place. I had never been Louise's favorite person, and the upcoming confrontation was bound to be particularly terrible. Goldie, Louise exclaimed. I would like to know. Louise, Richard Chenault barked. Please be quiet. He turned to me. Goldie, I'm worried about you. Are you all right? Do you have any idea what happened to Dusty? I dreaded telling him that his niece, Dusty Rout, daughter of the ne'er-do-well brother who'd abandoned his family, might be dead. It's bad, I said, trying to keep my voice steady. I found Dusty. You found Dusty? Donald Ellis echoed.